Join us on the Steps of 36, a question-and-answer conversation that crosses the thresholds into the histories, lives, influences, and stories of the person and figure behind their work. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Hello and welcome to On the Steps of 36, a podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Um, today we're joined by Mariana Janovic, an architect, writer, and educator who's a member of the Feminist Design Collective Edit. Her work has been exhibited at the Oslo Architecture Triennale, the Maxi, and most recently she was a 2023 researcher in residence at the Design Museum. So welcome, Mariana. It's great Hello. to have you here. Thank you for having me. So to get started, um, what's your full name and star sign? Uh, my name is Marianna Janovic. I'm a Pisces slash uh, metal goat. Metal goat? Yeah, I'm a millennial, born in 1991. Okay. I didn't know that Chinese horoscopes came with like a material. Um, yeah, they do. Um, I think there is um, a few, they kind of come with an element um, but I don't know the ins and outs. I'm always a bit resentful about being a goat, though, because it's one of the kind of like meek and sensitive signs. It's not like a snake or a dragon <laughs> um, or a rooster, which are the kind of like entrepreneurial go-getters. Well, you could prove them all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and did you ever have a nickname or do you still? Um, I suppose I go by... Mariana, nowadays, my name is quite difficult to shorten. Um, but yeah, at school, I was Marian, or I'm still married to some people sometimes. Yeah. And where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Poland, in a small town of about 10,000 people called Pushtykowo. Very difficult to pronounce. Um, and it's kind of a commuter town, I suppose. It's near um, one of the kind of larger cities, a city called Poznań, uh, which is about 600,000 people. Um, so it felt like I, well, I sometimes say I'm from Poznań, because um, then from middle school, I would go to school in Poznań, and it's kind of like the town feels connected to to the city interesting yeah and what kind of i guess what kind of building was the house that you grew up in um it was a single story kind of detached house um i suppose a bungalow but i don't like to call it a bungalow because it makes me think of those like retirement estates <laughs> in in england um but yeah, I guess I guess it was a bungalow. Um, it had a large garden. Um, it was um, at the end of this kind of one-way street, which was really lovely because there wasn't a lot of car traffic. And I would always hang out with... There were a lot of children um, similar in age in the street and we would always um, like roller skate or cycle up and down the street on Sundays. Um, it just felt really safe and really fun. Um, and the house was built by my dad actually. Oh wow. Um, he's, um, he's, he, he's worked in construction. He's a um, structural engineer. 
and it was built from it was built of um, like leftover materials from building sites that he worked on. He was he was a site so manager cool. at the time, um, and that was um, like very early nineties. We moved. I moved into the house when I was one, I think. Um, so I guess it was kind of around the time when in Poland building materials you know, might still be hard to come by or like, you know, supply chains weren't as smooth as you would imagine. But he probably also did it out of frugality. Um, so it was like orange, brick, green roof tiles. And we had these um, quite nice kind of like composite stone slash terrazzo, very cold, um, windowsills on the inside um but yeah it was it was pretty humble I think I think it was about 100 square meters which doesn't seem that big when I think about it now but when I was little I thought it was huge <laughs> it's funny how like just how big we are determines how big we feel like the spaces are we occupy um I guess how many of you lived together in that home so it was uh, me, my mom and my two brothers, my parents were, um, like splitting up at the time. Um, and yeah, each of us had our own room, so I never had to share a room, which was quite luxurious. Yeah. Very. I'm quite jealous. <laughs> and did you have a favorite toy as a child? Um, I did. I think a toy that I really loved that I remember when I was sort of kindergarten age, was uh, a vet Barbie. She was a vet and she had leggings with uh, paw prints and um, like a white doctor's coat. And she came with a cat and a dog and a cat and dog bed. Um, and at the time I wanted to be a vet um, when I grow up. So it was uh, <laughs> topical. <laughs> Did she have a name? I can't remember. Um, and I guess, were there any foods you refused to eat when you were young? I think many. I was a very bad eater. Um, and now I love eating. So for parents out there, there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, mushrooms, I remember I didn't like. And I think I only liked um, like very specific sandwich topping co um, combinations. So like I would only have cheese with tomato. Or like pate with radish, but not never like the wrong vegetable with the wrong. <laughs> Very <laughs> precise. Yeah. <laughs> and what was your most memorable holiday before leaving home? I think it was probably the first time I took a flight. I went to Mallorca with my dad. Um, I was nine. And I just really remember how excited I was about taking a flight Um and it was probably one of the first abroad um, holidays. Um, and we got there and apparently, I can't remember the details very well, very well but apparently I said to my dad that I can um, stay here now and I will learn Spanish and go to school <laughs> in Mallorca. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
you're ready <laughs> to leave home then. Yeah, yeah, I was enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> and how would you describe what you do now? I suppose I wear a few hats. Um, I'm an architect, which is, uh, I suppose, a title you don't want to let go of because <laughs> it takes so long to earn it. Um, and uh, I'm also an educator, a tutor, uh, a researcher, um, a writer. Um, so I work. I work with um, with edit um, on various sorts of design and research projects. Um, but I suppose it's um, it's kind of the closest thing to an architectural practice. Um, we've been doing exhibition design and um, public space projects so this is kind of my, where I have my practice element um, and then I teach architecture also design studio and um, architectural history um, and research um, which is written and sometimes it's more of um, design research or research by making um, and I suppose I'm still defining what my what my practice uh, really is, but I refuse to let go of any of the elements. I enjoy having um, kind of different hats. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I think it's, yeah, it's, uh, I was trying to explain to some students yesterday that I don't think there's a moment where you wake up and feel like, now I know what my practice is. It's constantly evolving. And that's part of what's so exciting about it. But I guess you mentioned earlier that when you were younger, you wanted to be a vet. Mm -hmm. So how do you think you got from vet to what you're doing now? Oh, through many <laughs> iterations. Um, the vet story is quite funny because I remember, I would say when I was little that I wanted to be a vet, I always really loved animals. And then I remember some people telling me that it's not a very good job for a woman um, because they kind of imagined, I guess you have to look after farm animals or, or something um but when I think about it now I'm sort of like imagining it was probably one of my moments of feminist <laughs> consciousness <laughs> um and then I think I briefly wanted to be a doctor because I watched a lot of um ER with my brothers yeah I definitely mom. had a very similar oh, yeah. experience I was like, convinced I was going to become a doctor I watched like a heart transplant on tv and I was like this is it but then when I went to school it turned out I'm not very good at biology and chemistry and physics um so that was that dream shattered um I really loved languages at school um and I suppose um like I didn't do art history or art at school just because my school didn't offer it. Like our education model in Poland is a little bit more conservative than here. Um, so we aren't really allowed to do art and fun things like that at school. Or at least we weren't then or at least at my school. Um, so I really loved the languages um, and I think I like the idea of studying something to do with a language. Um, but that didn't go down very well with my parents. <laughs> oh, no. um, so I took um, 
I took like um, drawing and painting classes outside of school. Um, that was in high school because I thought oh, maybe I could do architecture or interior design. Um, and that, so it wasn't, you know, something that I've always wanted to do. It was kind of like a, um, a little bit of interest, a little bit maybe of a kind of like a rational, trying to make a rational choice. Um, and then I took, I took a year off after school. Um, and that's when I kind of finally decided not to do interior design, but to go and study architecture. Interesting. And other than a phone or a laptop, what are the tools that you would say you work with? Um, a desk. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. Yeah, because a lot of people say laptop. Um, I'm going to say I've got this app uh, called Evernote, which I really like because it's synced across my devices. So for making notes on the go. Um, and then also Photoshop. Um, and then I wish I was making more physical college colleges. So I'm going to say it here to manifest it. <laughs> so I'm going to say um, like old magazines and um, scissors and glue. Great. I love it. I love a bit of physical collage. <laughs> I'm going to manifest that for myself as well. So what is the space in which you work like? Um, so I'm quite nomadic. Um because we don't currently have a studio space as edit. And then I teach at the University for the Creative Arts in Canterbury. So I spend a little bit of time on the train. Um, but I do have a room in my house, which is a very messy study. Um, it's got an armchair for reading. And it's got a desk, um, which is very messy, with um, stacks of books on it. Nice. Sounds very cozy. Yeah, it is. And you mentioned Evernote earlier, but is there an app which you can't live without other than that? Google Maps or Spotify. Um, probably the real answer is Instagram, but I wish it wasn't. <laughs> very honest I, like I, tr <laughs> I, tr I delete it every now and again uh, for a few days when I get fed up with myself um, but the other day I forgot that I was having a conversation with someone in the DMs um, so that's you know entering Instagram says, yeah it's quite hard to cut it off I know it's become become too much of an obsession mm. <laughs> I'm guilty as well and if there was one technological uh, device that you could invent, what would it be? I don't generally dream of technologies. But, but you have created a lot of devices in your practice. That's true. I started saying this and then I realized, no, that's not true. I actually love technology. Um, I like past technologies. Um, but I would say um, like maybe teleportation. Okay. So like a low carbon or low impact long distance travel. It's a good one. I hope I hope you invent it soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do. Don't we? <laughs> and um, I guess, where do you live now? Um, I live in Sydenham, which is between Forest Hill and Crystal Palace, for those who don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, southeast London. 
And is there one hidden building or space that you would recommend to visit in Sydney? Yes, I'm a big fan of the Crystal Palace National Sports Centre, which is in the middle of Crystal Palace Park. It's a modernist building from 1964. It was um, commissioned and procured and designed entirely by the LCC Architects Department. Um, And it's a really beautiful and really kind of useful um, building. And I think it speaks to the ambition and kind of scale that public procurement had in this country. Um, at that time um, and it's got these um, slender uh, concrete columns uh, forming this kind of like structural A-frame spine through the center of the building um, and it always reminded me of a, of a church a church nave it's, it's really beautiful inside yeah and I guess for anyone listening that doesn't know LCC stands for the London County Council and um yeah, it was a time when there were a lot of architects working in the public sector making incredible projects like this. Yeah, a time worth remembering. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you say is your favorite building currently in existence? So this was a difficult one, um, but I'm going to go with um, Teshima Art Museum, which um, I was lucky enough to visit um, last summer. And it's a bit of a cop-out answer because it's barely architecture. It's um, it's called an art museum, but it's really, um, I don't know, more of an art artwork. But it, it houses a single artwork um, by artist uh, Ray Naito. Um, the building is by uh, Ray Nishizawa of Sana. Um, and it's a pretty radical building. It's um, it's kind of two interconnected um, concrete shells or domes, um, and they've got um, two cutouts um, in the roof, so it's not protected from the elements. That's why it's barely architecture. Um, and then the floor is made of poured concrete, and the concrete has got very tiny and almost imperceptible to the human eye um, falls um, and then it's got um, little openings through which um, in, in the floor through which water droplets of water are expelled and then these droplets of water they travel very slowly across this floor and they kind of pull together and join together very slowly and then they um, kind of run towards these imperceptible falls um, and it was just such a beautiful and meditative experience being there. It's it's kind of, um, yeah, quite an indulgent, beautiful and responsive uh, building. Yeah, it sounds like such an embodied experience, like something that would be quite hard to capture in an image or somehow record. So I really liked how you described it. I've always wanted to go. I've not been yet. Yeah, I would highly recommend it you're forbidden from taking pictures inside um which is maybe for the best because you're able to just kind of hang out and watch and observe it's um yeah really a wonderful experience resist the impulse to instagram (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um and if you could visit one piece of architecture that no longer exists what would it be i'm going to go with the crystal palace um 
because it's also in my local area. It's in the park. Uh, well, it used to be in the park that I love. The area takes its name from the Crystal Palace. And it's so kind of shrouded in, you know, myth and legend. And um, it burned down in 1936. But it sounds like it was such an impressive building and an eclectic and fascinating and complex space. And has such an incredible name. Yeah. Added bonus. Exactly. Um, if you could select one vehicle to travel around the world in, what would it be? I have to confess, I really liked the Debbie Manura's answer, which was the sleeper train. So I thought I would steal that and add a twist for myself. Um, and I'm going to say the Orient Express. Oh. So like a really luxurious train, which is both a destination and a means to travel. Um, so yeah, for environmental reasons, but also you know, imagining having the time to cross the world in Orient Express. Yeah, with glamour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just speaks luxury, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's a great answer. And I'm sure Debbie wouldn't mind. <laughs> well, I credit her, yeah. at least. <laughs> <laughs> we can all go. Um, yeah, come along. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. I, I mean, I don't want to go by myself. I'm just kind of invited myself along. <laughs> <but anyway. laughs> Everyone's invited. Yeah. But I guess, like, you know, speaking of, like, a more sustainable way to travel um, and thinking about more sustainable ways we could practice, is there a kind of building material that you think is ugly or that you despise? Uh-huh. So I was going to say no building materials are ugly and, like, every material can be beautiful. But then I was, I was discussing this answer with my partner and he was like, sounds like, Miss World pageant. <laughs> <laughs> you can give us your Miss World answer. <laughs> uh, but then I was thinking, like, you know, even Pebble Dash is making a comeback and is being used in really fun, creative ways. Um, and then I thought, how about, um, like, cheap, standardized facade systems? That's pretty bad. Or at least we haven't learned how to use it in a fun, imaginative way yet. You know, like those thin, infamous brick slips that kind of peel yeah. off those facade systems. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's the optimist in me. But I think maybe we can come up with a with a way to use those in a better way in the future. Yeah. I kind of like that um, over time that this question will become like a call to action. Like, find a way to make this beautiful mm -hmm. <laughs> or useful mm. <laughs> or both. And so I guess moving to back to London, um, what is your favorite restaurant? So lately I've been obsessed with this place called Lao Cafe. Um, it's Laotian food and it's in Covent Garden. Oh, wow. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, I know. I think I found it by accident several years ago. Um but yeah, it's amazing. The best papaya salad I've ever had. I love papaya salad, so mm. I'm going to check it out. And what would you consider to be your perfect meal? So maybe continuing with that theme, I would say um, like a large meal could be at Lao Cafe with many different dishes that are shared. I love sharing. I don't like committing to one thing and then having food FOMO. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> 
<laughs> Food FOMO is the worst. <laughs> Especially if you're eating with someone who doesn't like to share. Oh, uh, I just don't hang out with those kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the last cultural event that you attended? Um, so last week I went to the Cult of Beauty exhibition at the Welcome Collection, uh, which was really excellent. Um, it was also um, really packed with staff. I feel like I probably have to go again. It was also busy during the week, um, which is great. Um, but yeah, um, some friends of ours at Edit um, uh, Excessive Aesthetics have got um, an installation piece there. Um, so really great to see a few kind of like specially commissioned pieces. Um, but what I loved about the show was that it kind of like branches out into so many contemporary and topical areas, whilst also bringing um, history and like really interesting artifacts from the Welcome Collection. So like um, beauty, um, you know, devices and strange contraptions and works works of art from from art history um and yeah super interesting yeah i've been dying to go actually because like rihanna spoke in the public program last week and um seeing glimpses of it online and in her talk it's um and also hearing about the commission ahead of time i'm really excited to see how it all manifests in one mm. space um and if you could inhabit one film which would it be I was thinking about um, Krzysztof Kieślowski's films. So he did the Three Colors with Juliette, Juliette Binoche. He's, he's a Polish director. Um, and he also did, did um, the series of short films, um, which is called Ten Commandments. Um, and I thought I would pick one of those films um, because they are set in communist era Poland. And that was a time in my country's history that I haven't experienced that was born after the fall of communism. And, you know, I've heard so much about it from my parents and my relatives. Um, but then Kieślowski manages to make this, you know, dire gray period also quite beautiful. Um, and I thought, you know, this question is an opportunity for me to time travel and try and experience it for myself. And what's your favorite television show now? Um, so it could be a series, right? Yeah. Um, I can say Giri Hadji. Um, it's like a limited series, um, British-Japanese production. Um, it's about, um, well, um, the, the crime world, I suppose. And there's this, Yakuza gangster um, who is being um, who's on the run in London um, and the show is really well made and you can kind of tell that it's a, co a true co-production of two countries um, and really really good characters um, and yeah really fun I would recommend it great I'll check it out and what was the first album that you bought? So I don't I don't know if I bought it myself, um, but one that I requested and was probably bought by my parents would be Britney Spears, the one with the brown cover. I don't actually remember the um, the name of the album, 
I'm sure Britney fans know <laughs> which one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one with, oops, I did it again. Hit me baby one more time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the one. Yeah. I mean, I was a product of our times. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Along with um, Spice Girls. Yeah, probably. It's probably like the first album I bought. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the kids at kindergarten listened to. <laughs> Which um, musician do you secretly love, but are embarrassed to admit it? Elton John. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's on my um, lineup of, like, if I'm on a deadline or if I was at uni and working late, I would listen to, like, power ballads or Disney film songs or Elton John. Power ballads, that's my go-to. Yeah. Like, I just love a good, um, I don't know, like a woman, like 90s power ballad. (laughs) Yeah. It's like gets you motivated to keep going. (laughs) Yeah, so somehow Elton John lives in the same category for me. I don't know why. It's it's good for singing along as well. Yeah, that's true. When you're tired and you're I need to keep going. <laughs> um, that's that's interesting. I might add add Elton John to my lineup. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. And what's your favorite album now? Um, I'll go with uh, Boxer by The National. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess um, moving to like kind of current affairs or current events, I guess this it, it's kind of an interesting trend um, or interesting kind of development over time but I guess uh, I've been interested in this as well but in the UK there are about 2,000 golf courses which is like quite strange I didn't think that many people played golf Um, and in London alone that works out to be around 11,000 hectares of green space and um, Guy Shrubsole had done this investigation into like who owned different types of land in in the UK and he was he discovered that 49% of all golf courses in London are actually owned by local authorities or the Crown Estate. And um, during the pandemic, that meant like a lot of people were calling for these green spaces to be opened up to relieve the pressure on parks. And in like a recent article, um, there's also been uh, talk of how these could be developed into homes across the city. So how do you think this could respond to the kind of ongoing housing crisis? And what do you think is the potential of something that seems so inaccessible and like maybe more of a space of privilege like the golf course? Mm-hmm. I think the potential is huge. That's why the topic is quite interesting and exciting. And um, RCKA um, have been doing kind of speculative um, architectural work to show how some golf courses could be, for example, divided into two and how you could have homes for, you know, crazy numbers of people. I think it was 2,000 or 3,000 Um so it's a really kind of important topic because I feel like this is where architecture can really enter the public discourse. And I think it's a topic which um, really kind of visualizes, helps us imagine that land is not infinite. Um, and it kind of questions this idea of private luxury, you know, like, can we really afford it? And you know, in the 20th century in the West, we've kind of lived in this kind of culture that really prioritizes private property and rights to uh, private property. 
And I think the time in which we live now um, really shows that this is not really an approach that we can have for the future. And land is finite and we can't have everything. So how can we, you know, instead shift to thinking about public luxury or, you know, public good? Yeah, and, and therefore shift our behaviors as a society as well, like from these like maybe more exclusive sports to kind of opening up these parcels of land for everyone to enjoy collectively. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of hope that this topic and this work, this research that people are doing, um, that it can be kind of like a useful connection to show how, you know, architecture can be relevant to contemporary debates and to maybe kind of like start shifting the dial on um, on a kind of collective consciousness and advocacy um, and kind of show us the ways that we can begin dealing with the housing crisis. Definitely. And I guess in that spirit, if there was one ill of the world that you could vanish, what would it be? So I think that would be the marginalization of care work. And I imagine that extending from, um, you know, reproductive rights to the issue of poor pay for nurses and care home workers. Um, so I'm kind of trying to come up with an answer that will catch a lot of the social ills that we're facing. Um, but this, this um, I listened to this talk the other day by Helen Hester and Nick Snitchuk. She's... Um, uh, gender studies scholar and he's an economist um, and they do a lot of research on kind of future of work and also on care work and they said in the talk that care work is the majority of work we are doing in the world and that we will be doing in the world in the future so if you think about it like that you know including childcare and care for the sick and the elderly um, and I don't know if it was included in their definition but I suppose caring for the planet and the environment could also come into that um, and at the same time it's a type of work that is really marginalized it's unpaid or it's underpaid um, and I don't think it is discussed um, enough um, and it's an issue that cuts through uh, many kind of social divisions. Um, so, for example, the fact that black mothers are still almost four times more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth in the UK. Um, and for Asian mothers, I think it's twice as likely. Um, and these um, pregnancy mortali mortality rates um, have actually gone up since 2019, I think. Um, so it's it's really kind of painting a, a dire um, a dire picture. And I think you know for me, it is, I suppose I'm trying to describe a kind of wider cultural shift which is desperately needed from kind of economic growth and production to kind of, being better at managing and valuing the resources that we have and, um, yeah, centering care work. Yeah. 
And kind of, yeah, again, I guess it's a shift in value systems away from productivity and efficiency to more like slowing down and actually taking care of each other, taking care of the planet and mm -hmm. making sure that like we prioritize maybe longevity rather than the quick fix. Or, mm. um, yeah, I think it's it's actually, yeah, it's a really lovely answer and that it does capture so much of what's wrong <laughs> maybe with society at the moment or like where we need a break in how we're currently operating. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously quite passionate about the topic, but even if you try to understand it in economic terms, um, we also have an aging society um, and it is it just feels like something we will really have to deal with, you know, wherever you sit on yeah, the kind no, of political spectrum. Definitely. And it's something we'll all experience at some point in our lives, so it's worth investing in. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of... Um, Historically and still, it's an issue that affects women more, but it will affect all of us, especially if we're being optimistic about, you know, our drive towards greater gender equality. Definitely. So now, after having made you think so hard about all these very um, thoughtful and engaging answers, we're going to go to the quick fire round, which okay. is hopefully... Um, just like easier to, to um, I guess, come up with, not necessarily having to solve major problems. <laughs> Just tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, great. I'm happy to solve some very minor problems. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite color? Blue. What's your favorite season? Summer. Do you have a guilty pleasure? There are no guilty pleasures. Love it. Um, what's your most prized possession? I don't think they're strictly possessions, but I think I have to say my cats, like they are the creatures I would save if my house was on fire. Um, I'm sure they're happy about that too. <laughs> what was your first experience of the AA? Um, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably one of the summer shows and trying to navigate the building and climbing the steps and you know, the multiple links and entrances between the buildings. <laughs> yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. The rabbit warren that you just get lost. <laughs> yeah. And could you describe the AA in one word? I'm going to go with esteemed. Okay. Well, <laughs> well thank you so much for answering all these questions. And I think unlike anyone who's been on the podcast, who's usually already given a lecture in the public program, we're doing this just ahead of when you are about to be part of a conversation about feminist practice. So it's been a real privilege to get to talk to you about all of this as um, almost like a warm up to the conversation we're about to have in the lecture hall. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.